I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, there is a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. On June 20th, Iran shot down a U.S. military drone, further escalating the already volatile situation playing out between Washington and Tehran in the Middle East. Iran's Revolutionary Guard said it had shot down an intruding American spy drone after it entered into the country's territory. But the U.S. said the incident occurred in international airspace over the Strait of Hormuz, one of the world's most vital oil shipping routes. This location question is important when it comes to the question of legal right. But whether or not it was in international airspace is not the only determinant of whether or not Iran had a legal right to shoot it down. Our guest today, Marjorie Cohn, is a legal scholar who argues that Iran did indeed have a legal right to shoot down the U.S. spy drone. That's our focus in the first half of today's show. In the second half, we'll look at Honduras 10 years after the coup, which Hillary Clinton supported. Well, thanks for being with us again, Marjorie. My pleasure, Bert. Thanks for having me. The incident which kicked off the new saber-rattling was, of course, the June 13th attack on two oil tankers, one Japanese, the other Norwegian, in the Gulf of Oman. The U.S. blamed Iran right away, which denied responsibility, while neither Japan nor Norway said Iran was responsible. This incident then led to uh, the U.S. flying a drone spy plane in the vicinity of Iran. It was shot down by Iran on June 20th. Iran doesn't deny shooting it down. Trump was about to attack Iran for this and then called it off at the last minute. Bluster and threat seems to be Trump's modus operandi. But before we go to war, wouldn't it be useful to determine if Iran was within its legal right? Our guest writes, Iran has the legal right to control its own airspace. The U.S. has no lawful claim of self-defense that would justify a military attack on Iran. Well, we've had her on before, and thankfully she's back. Marjorie Cohn is Professor Emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she taught for 25 years. The former president of the National Lawyers Guild and criminal defense attorney is a legal scholar and political analyst who writes books and articles and lectures throughout the world about human rights, U.S. foreign policy, and the contradiction between the two. She's testified before Congress and debated the legality of the war in Afghanistan at the prestigious Oxford Union. Her columns appear on Truthout, Huffington Post, Salon, Jurist, Truthdig, Portside, Common Dreams, and Consortium News. And she's provided commentary for CBS News, BBC, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, NPR, and Pacifica Radio. Well, again, thanks for being with us. So, Trump pulled back and did not launch an attack, but as your article points out, regional U.S. military assets have been put on 72-hour standby. The tension is real, and it is continuing. 
does it need to be? In terms of legality, uh, Marjorie Cohn, please address the question of the location of the U.S. drone. The U.S. says it was in international airspace. Iran says no. One says 20 miles out, the other says eight. Has there been evidence offered from either side on this question? Um, yes. Iran presented GPS coordinates showing the U.S. drone eight miles from Iran's coast, which is inside the area of 12 nautical miles that is considered part of Iran's territorial waters under the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, and according to Bruce Franklin, who's a former Air Force navigator and intelligence officer, um, he says it's still undeniable that Iran had the right to demand identification from any aircraft flying near its territory. Um, according to U.S. Air Defense Identification Zones, they extend 200 miles from the border. So any unidentified drone which flew that close to the U.S. would most likely have been shot down. So then we, I imagine pretty much any country would have a right under what you just uh, spoke about, a right, a legal right to shoot down an unmanned drone, which is present without the consent of the, uh, the country that, uh, whose airspace it is. Um, yes, it would. Under the Chicago Convention on International Civil Aviation, uh, to which both U.S. and Iran are parties, um, it says that every state has complete and exclusive sovereignty over the airspace above its territory. And according to state practice, state meaning countries, um, states can use force against unmanned drones that have entered its airspace without consent. Now, also, Bert, there have been reports that there was a manned, um, not a drone, a drone is an unmanned vehicle, which right. Trump doesn't seem to know, but right. um, actually a plane flying over in Iran's airspace with 32 members um, of the U.S. military in it, and Iran made the decision not to shoot that down. Um, they could have, and there wow. would have been tremendous loss of life, and I don't think Trump would have, would have uh, hesitated right. in retaliating, um, but, uh, <clears throat> but that, that did not happen, fortunately. Boy, I'd say so. So Iran, you know, one has to wonder sometimes uh, throughout history, there's uh, uh, dangerous situations and who backed down first. One can look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy got a lot of credit for that, but maybe it was really Khrushchev. But that's another story. Uh, so, if, you know, just thinking about where we are in the United States, uh, what would we do and, and if there was an unidentified drone which flew that close to the U.S.? I imagine it would be shot down. We, 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 we would have that right, correct? If it was in our airspace, yes. And according to the U.S. Air Defense Identification uh, Zone system, if, there's, uh, if there is, are any aircraft within 200 miles of our border, they have to identify themselves. Um, if anyone got that close to the U.S. border, you better believe they would be shot down in a hot second. I imagine. And... Now, do we know, I understand that there were radio warnings from Iran. Do we know if the U.S. responded to it when they, when they noticed that the drone was flowing, flying where it was, they tried to do uh, the required radio warnings? What, what is known about that? 
Well, Iran's ambassador to the United Nations, um, Majik Tad Ravanchi, wrote a letter to the UN Security Council saying that the U.S. spy drone did not respond to several radio warnings before it was shot down. Interesting. So, you know, it's it's almost it's it's so fairly obvious that it's like poking a hornet's nest. You know, what do you expect to happen? And, and, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think it's important to um, just have a brief primer on the law of self-defense. Under the United Nations Charter, um, a country can use military force against another country only in self-defense after an armed attack or with the approval of the Security Council. And the International Court of Justice, which is the court system set up by the UN Charter, um, held in 1986 in the Nicaragua case that an armed attack only includes the most grave forms of the use of force. Now, nobody was injured or killed when Iran shot down the U.S. spy drone because it was unmanned. And uh, even, even before uh, Trump decided to pull back and not uh, and not shoot it down i think a day or two before well not a, it, it wasn't a day or two before but it was um it was shortly before he told reporters that it made a big big difference that a us pilot was not threatened and when he decided not to shoot down not to respond to the iranian downing of the us drone um trump tweeted Quote, we were locked, we were cocked, yes. <laughs> we were right cocked on. and loaded, not mm-hmm. locked and loaded, cocked and loaded, yeah. uh, to retaliate. And by the way, retaliation is illegal under the U.N. Charter. You cannot mm-hmm. retaliate. But Trump wrote, he tweeted, we were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked how many will die. 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it, not proportionate to shooting down down an unmanned drone. Now, it's true. It is not proportionate, and there is a concept of proportionality in international humanitarian law that we are bound by that would would make this illegal, and, and, and the U.N. Charter would make retaliation illegal. But it's, uh, and there's been a lot of commentary about this in the media, it just defies logic to think that 10 minutes before, and in fact he did a radio interview saying a minute, I I waited Uh a second, Mm. um, before he pulled back the order to to, uh, retaliate against Iran, um, he was told by uh, the generals that, 150 people would die. Now, that's part of the briefing that a president gets way in advance, um, and if, especially if the, uh, if, if the uh, U.S. bombers were cocked and loaded or locked and loaded or whatever they were, ready to retaliate, um, there's just no way that the military, that the generals would not have told the president uh, before 10 minutes, uh, you know, before he, he, uh, he was to give the signal. Um, how many people would die. That's part of the briefing. But, of course, everything has to be, you know, a big reality show with Trump. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like setting up a straw man and knocking him down. You know, uh, really, Trump has created this, uh, this tension with Iran. Um, in 2015, five countries, um, the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, and Russia, and China, I guess six countries, along with Iran, um, agreed to the Iran nuclear deal. And it would 
um, ensure it would basically slow down any um, any nuclear program, not any nuclear program. Iran has maintained it doesn't have nuclear weapons, but right. uh, any program of <clears throat> you know nuclear program uh, in return for lifting the punishing sanctions against Iran. And according to the UN's uh, nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Iran was compliant right. with the Iran deal, and the countries were very satisfied. But when um, when Trump came in, and he has Bolton and Pompeo, mm. who hate Iran, and they're really pushing him to attack Iran, to say nothing of Israel and Saudi Arabia, who yes. also hate Iran, yes. um, they pressured Trump, and Trump... Uh, reneged and pulled out of the Iran deal. Now, of course, he wanted to destroy everything Obama had created yeah, because he's, totally. he's competing with Obama. And it, Netanyahu actually took credit for convincing uh, Trump to pull out of the Iran deal. So once they once um, it, they pulled out of the Iran deal, Iran continued to abide by the limitations in that deal um, for, I think it was about 14 months. And meanwhile, um, there has been an escalation. So, so, um, so meanwhile, Trump designated Iran's Revolutionary Guard a terrorist group uh, in April. Um, and then Iran threatened to close the Strait of Hormuz, through which one-third of the world's oil passes. Mm. And then Iran's um, Supreme National Security Council designated the U.S. Central Command a terrorist organization. Um, and then Trump ordered, uh, you know, 2,500 additional troops to the area and an aircraft carrier. So the tensions have been have been increasing. Now, what has just happened is that um, after abiding by the nuclear deal for I don't know some 14 months, um, Iran, relying on a provision in the uh, Iran nuclear deal, which is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, that deal says, and by the way, the Security Council passed a resolution enshrining that nuclear deal. So the Iran deal is not just a deal between six countries or seven countries. It's, a, it's actually a resolution of the Security Council. And in that, um, in that resolution, in that nuclear deal, um, and, and Iran is asserting this, and it says that if nuclear-related sanctions are reimposed, um, then... Uh, then um, the, then Iran can not; it doesn't have to obey right. its um, obligations under the under the deal. And what's happened is that uh, Trump has applied three, or I guess it's four, um, different regimes of sanctions that are that have created fifty percent inflation um, and have interfered with. Um, I think half of, of Iran's oil experts, exports, um, and these sanctions are crippling the Iranian people. They're dying because of shortages of medicine and medical equipment. Um, and uh, then there, there was a fourth um, round of sanctions last week, which was uh, ostensibly aimed at Iran's supreme leader, Khamenei. Mm-hmm. Um, there. These are, are really more symbolic than anything, but they have a, a, a huge political impact. And uh, after those last sanctions, that's when Iran um, said that it was going to exceed the limit on the amount of enriched uranium that sure. it could stockpile. Right. Um, there were limits on... The, well, Trump had... Um, 
basically, and and uh, the New York Times says there's an argument to be made that Trump pushed Iran into exceeding the stockpile limit because yes. among some of the recent sanctions was that um, it threatened action against any country that buys low-enriched uranium from Iran. And so what Iran was doing was shipping its low-enriched uranium to Russia, and uh, and now that exchange is barred by the U.S. sanctions, and so it's, Trump is really kind of forcing yes. Iran to um, to increase their 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 uh, stockpile of uh, of nuclear material, and um, and so it's now above the 300 kilogram limit. Um, also, and this is a separate issue, Iran has said that in early July it's going to start to enrich uranium. This is not the stockpiling, which I just talked about, but this is enriching uranium above the 3.67% uh, cap. Um, and that is is a level, that 3.67% purity is a level that can be used for civilian purposes, but... Um, uh. um, like nuclear power, but right. not for a weapon. And Iran would need roughly triple the amount of 3.67% enriched uranium, um, which it's allowed to, to, uh, to uh, possess under the agreement, in order to further enrich material into weapons-grade strength to make a bomb. They're still way, you know, pretty far away from that. Um, and so, um, and under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, Iran and non-nuclear countries, and Iran is a non-nuclear country, it doesn't have nuclear weapons like the U.S. and Israel, etc., um, non-nuclear countries are, in, are allowed to enrich uranium right. for peaceful purposes. Um, but White House, the new White House Press Secretary, Stephanie Grisham, said that it was a mistake under the Iran nuclear deal to allow Iran to enrich any uranium at any level, and so they're demanding no enrichment, and they want negotiations. So they're they're flying, you know, <laughs> imposing four sets of punishing sanctions on Iran, flying spy drones over uh, Iran's airspace or nearby, whichever whichever you believe. Um, designated uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, um, really stepping up the pressure um, against Iran and expecting Iran not to respond. And the <laughs> European countries in the Iran nuclear deal and the EU and Russia and China were trying to come up with some work around these other sanctions so that um, <clears throat> to provide Iran relief from the sanctions um, so that it would not... Um, uh, violate any of the terms of the deal, and Iran says it's not violating the deal because the sanctions violate the deal, and once the sanctions are imposed, right. then they don't have to abide by the limits. So basically what we have here is a very, very dangerous, volatile situation, and I haven't even mentioned um, the U.S. aircraft carrier group with 7,500 troops that Trump sent recently to join two other carrier groups with 10,500 forces already in the region, and he deployed um, nuclear-capable B-52 bombers and another 25, I didn't mention the 2,500 troops. Um, and it's, you know, this is a very small area, the Persian Gulf, the Strait of Hormuz, um, it's, very it's very volatile, and um, you know, one false move on anyone's part, and this could turn into a regional war, and it would be an absolute disaster. Uh, by all accounts, it would be worse than uh, than the Iraq War. Oh, yeah. um, and and if you look at the results 
of the illegal, ill-advised, deadly, tragic Iraq war that uh, that Bush prosecuted, uh, you know, in in 2003, he, he attacked yeah. Iraq um, after trying to connect. Saddam Hussein with Al Qaeda, which sure. is what Pompeo is trying to do now to, right. to connect Iran with Al Qaeda, so so they can use the authorization for use of military force that right. uh, that Congress gave Bush after 9/11. But if you look at the the impact of this of the Iraq War, um, it has created the rise of ISIS. Um, It has provided greater support for authoritarian rulers in the Arab countries um, and contributed, led to the civil wars in Libya, Syria, and Yemen, a massive wave of refugees, to say nothing of the uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have been killed in in the Iraq War. Um, And to think that a war with Iran, which does not need to happen, which it it, it absolutely was doing fine in this Iran nuclear agreement until, Mm -hmm. as you said, uh, Trump took a stick and hit the hornet's nest, um, would be much worse than what happened in Iraq. And we need to think about that and, uh, and pressure our congressional representatives to ensure that this is not going to happen. Um, there is a uh, bill pending in the yeah. Senate, and in fact, M- McConnell said that they can, they can actually discuss it. It's uh, just Whoa. four short, four Democrats short of, um, of you know, passing in the Senate, although it would need huh. 60 to withstand a veto. But at least it would indicate to, uh, to Trump, both the House and the Senate, that uh, you are not going to attack Iran without our permission under the Constitution, under the War Powers Resolution. It is Congress. It is not the president who uh, sends troops into battle. Mitch Mc- who approves the sending of troops into battle. Well, that is required by the Constitution, huh, that old document. Yes, but, it is. But McConnell is going to allow that to be discussed on the floor of the Senate? He is. Wow. I think he knows that they don't have the 60 votes to overcome a veto. Uh-huh. Um, but he just said, uh, well, I guess it was it was in uh, in June, I guess it was about the 25th of June, he finally relented and said that the Senate could vote on this amendment. It's the Udall-Paul Amendment um, to, uh. to block an unconstitutional war with Iran. And by the way, I, I, I just want to mention one other thing, and that is that uh, Trump, you know, is, is with his bluster, has said that if there's a war, uh, there's going to be obliteration yes. of Iran. Obliteration. Yes. It's a threat to commit genocide, Bert. Yes. You don't obliterate a country, and I, I have to say, and I don't like to, you know, I, I don't think Hillary Clinton's relevant at this point in our national discourse particularly, but um, at one point during her campaign in 2016, she said we were going to obliterate Iran. Um, this this language of obliterate, obliteration, um, is just... It, it's unnecessary. It's illegal. You cannot threaten to commit genocide um, under the UN Charter. You can't threaten the use of force unless it's in self-defense, even a threat. Um, so I think that we need to be very, very concerned and pressure our uh, congressional yes. representatives to try to stop um, what would be an illegal and disastrous 
war on Iran. And I, I don't think many people really understand Iran. It's huge. It's much bigger in terms of population than Iraq. Most of the people are very, you know, Western-oriented. And imagine a country where the leaders often disagree with the majority of the people. That's certainly, from everything I heard, the case in Iran. You know, it's it's peace-loving people mostly. I don't know about, you know, the few on top here, but what what do the Republicans say? I mean, is there a defense of the uh, spy drone? I mean, what's their defense on this? I, I can't see, imagine anything other than it's poking the hornet's nest. How can they say that this is a good thing to do? Well, the, there has been so much hype about Iran being the biggest state sponsor of terrorism in the world, which is just, it, 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 it's really uh, beyond belief. Uh, I, I think it's and I don't want to say undisputed because it's not undisputed, but in my mind it's undisputed right. that the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world is the United States. That seems pretty clear. The United States has 800 military bases around the world. Um, we have, even even during Obama, he was, he was uh, killing people with drones in seven different countries. That's true. Um, and if you look at a map of Iran and you look at the countries surrounding it and you look at the U.S. military bases, it's surrounded by U.S. military bases. There's tremendous firepower in that Gulf region. Um, of course, Iran is going, to be, is, is going to be concerned. And when yeah. Israel is leading the charge against Iran to attack Iran, and the APEC, which is the mm-hmm. Israel lobby, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest lobby, I think, in the country, so. um, is, is really owns a, a good a, you know a good number of senators and congresspeople. Oh, yeah. um, this it, you know the the uh, the rhetoric just gets overblown and people think Iran is this dangerous and oh my gosh Iran is now enriching more uranium than it's supposed to under a deal that the U.S. Broke. Yes. The U.S. broke that deal by yes. pulling out. They wouldn't be doing uh-huh. it otherwise. Well, I, I know you have to take off, but I just wanted to ask, you mentioned this Udall-Paul amendment. Uh, I'm sure Ron Paul, I, there's a lot I disagree with him on, but in foreign policy, the man is right on. What is this amendment? What can people do uh, to call their members of Congress specifically? Um, the amendment would block Trump from doing what he almost did uh, when he was 10 minutes away from doing, which was attacking Iran. Um, And there are basically four, uh, there are are four Republicans who, I guess all the Democrats are on board, but there are four Republicans who voted for the Yemen War Powers Resolution to prevent um, Trump from, from, uh, you know, providing aid to Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, And uh, there are four Republicans who voted for the Yemen War Powers Resolution who have not um, stated whether they're supporting the um, Udall-Paul Amendment, and they are Susan Collins of Maine, <laughs> Jerry Moran of Kansas, Steve Daines of Montana, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. And so those are the people to, uh, to pressure to sign on to and support the um, Udall-Paul Amendment to keep Trump from attacking Iran without congressional um, without congressional approval. Collins, Moran, Danes, and Murkowski. And we do have listeners all across the country, thanks to this podcast stuff. Marjorie Cohn always has a lot of very good information. Uh, what is your website, MarjorieCohn.org? Is that it? It's MarjorieCohn.com. .com. Okay, MarjorieCohn.com. That's C-O-H-N. Not like mine, C-O-H-E-N. No doubt we're related way back. But thank you very much, and boy, I hope we can not have another war. This is nuts. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm sure we'll talk again. 
Thanks for having me, Bert. Well, now we're going to uh, hear a little bit from a m- w- much wiser uh, political leader, Mr. Groucho Marx. And it's war! Get the horses! the horses! And it's war! gone to war, each native son will grab a gun and run away to war. At last we're going to the country's going to war. Is it? The country's going to war. Unless the country's going to war. We're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. In case you haven't heard before, I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. We're going to war. We're going to war. Going to war. Oh, it's such fun, right? Well, if we were to learn from history, way fewer bad things would happen. But Americans are known for not learning from history. Uh, As a result, we repeat policies and actions that not only do not help the national security interests of the United States, uh, but also uh, specifically do great unnecessary harm to people in less developed countries. Today we'll look at recent history and how what we did 10 years ago in Honduras affects us very directly today, specifically the migrant crisis. How many listeners remember the 2009 coup in Honduras? It came very shortly after Obama became president when Central Americans may have been at last hopeful of a new approach by a new president. Well, they didn't get that. Our guest James Phillips addresses where Honduras is today and how our support for that coup affects us 10 years later. James Phillips is a cultural and social anthropologist, recently retired after 22 years in the faculty of Southern Oregon University. Thanks for being with us, James Phillips. Thanks for inviting me. Well, he received his uh, Ph.D. from Brown University. Boy, is that hard to get into, Uh, and has specialized in studying Central America and the Caribbean region. His research and interests have focused on issues of social and political change, immigration and refugee populations, and human rights. He first visited Honduras in 1974 and has made frequent visits there since, ranging from a few weeks to several months. He also lived and did research in Jamaica in the 70s and Nicaragua, another country he continues to visit. He occasionally provides expert country witness in Honduran asylum cases in U.S. immigration courts. He's the author of Honduras in Dangerous Times, Resistance and Resilience After 
uh, Resistance and Resilience, and of many articles. His new article is Honduras at 10 Years After the Coup, a Critical Assessment. Well, again, thanks for being with us. You Thank you. I have to add that I'm a New England native, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Best part of the country. But then again, <laughs> I'm biased. You write that as the, country. as the 10th anniversary arrives, many Hondurans see the coup of 2009 as a major turning point that began a downward spiral in the country's troubled history, end of quote. What happened on the morning of June 28, 2009, and what was the American reaction, specifically that of the new Secretary of State? Well, we, on the morning of June 28, 2009, the Honduran army came to the house of the president, who had been duly elected and been in office for nearly four years, uh, came to his office, uh, his house, President Manuel Zelaya Rosales, came to the house, uh, took him out in his pajamas, put him on a plane. Uh, the plane, by the way, was sitting on the tarmac at the Palmarola base, which was a joint U.S.-Honduran uh, air base. And the plane uh, flew, in, flew Zelaya out of the country into exile. So that was basically a coup d'etat. They took out a sitting president, put him on a plane, and sent him into exile. And that action uh, was in violation of the Honduran Constitution because in the Constitution at the time there was no, there is no provision of that sort for for removing a president. It's certainly not that way. Um, and that had been uh, decided by the Congress, by members of the Congress, and by the Supreme Court at the time that acceded to that. So uh, it was it was sent out of the country. Now the reaction to that throughout much of Latin America and Europe was that this basically was a coup. It wasn't a military coup in the literal sense that the troops that they took over the entire government, but it was basically a coup d'état against a sitting elected president. And it was the first coup d'état in the Western Hemisphere in the 21st century. And we thought. People kind of thought that perhaps, you know, we were kind of beyond that now in the 21st century. Yeah. Well, the action to the United States from the U.S., uh, Secretary of State Clinton um, approved the removal of Zelaya. She didn't use the term coup, of course, because that would have triggered all kinds of problems. Um, but she basically said that, you know, uh, it was we had to do this because Zelaya was a problem and that... Uh, we wanted to ensure the stability of Honduras, etc. Uh, and uh, Obama himself, who was president at the time, was probably a little hesitant. But eventually, the United States came out and supported the members of the coup, the ones who had done the coup, and the interim government that was headed by the one of the coup leaders, the Roberto Micheletti, the head of Congress. And uh, so we were in the minority at the time, uh, in the Western Hemisphere at least, in, uh, in supporting this uh-huh. coup d'etat. Mm. Been there before. <laughs> yeah. Now, a, a great many of the refugees, desperate refugees arriving at the Mexico-America border, are from Honduras. As your piece points out, here are a number of reasons why so many have fled and continue to flee Honduras. You say the popular anger that has been building in the decades since the coup underlying all is an extractive development policy that is selling the country's resources to private and foreign interests and is at the root of much poverty and violence. Well, 
tell us about this extractive development policy and how it affects the people of Honduras, please. That policy um, actually began was was first initiated in, in the 1980s, but during the 1980s in Honduras and in Central America generally, there was, if you remember, there were wars going on and insurrections and all kinds of hell and mayhem. Uh, there was a revolution that had just taken place in Nicaragua to overthrow the 45-year dictatorship of the Somoza family okay. next door to Honduras. Uh-huh. And in El Salvador, there was another oh, yeah. insurrection. Um, so all of that's going on, and Guatemala has its problems as well. <laughs> so during this period, um, that that was never the policy that was in, in, initiated by the uh, by the U.S. government and the um, and the private sector in Honduras was a policy of economic development, which today we probably call neoliberal or some kind of term like that. And it was based on extractive industry and export industry. Uh, In other words, basically taking the resources of the country and exporting them. Uh Um, This is not a new thing, but it was also coupled with with privatization, which is an inherent part of that. So uh, that was what uh, was initiated in the 1980, but it really wasn't begun until the 1990s after the wars had ended and relative peace had come back to Central America. So from about the mid-1990s on, we have um, a policy of um, extractive industry uh, that is based on mining, uh, logging, uh, plantation agriculture, large-scale export agriculture, fruits, and things like that. Um, and uh, and just some tourism as well, and those were the kind of big four. Mm-hmm. Um, Honduras is a pretty rich country in terms of minerals and and you know mineral wealth and forestry. Oh. It still has some sizable stands of mahogany, which is very precious wood. Uh, and so there was some extractive industry going on. Uh, it's not a new thing in Honduras, but when the two thousand nine coup occurred. Part of the reason that they took out President Salaya and sent him into exile was that he was actually trying to, um, he, was, he was initiating a program of uh, moratorium against mining. Mm. And he was actually beginning to consult the local communities, you know, the, the um, peasant and farming communities, mm. about the impact of mining in, in, in these projects would have in their areas. One of the reasons why they took him out is because of that. And as soon as he was removed from office, the post-coup governments after 2009 reversed that moratorium and began to sell off uh, concessions, mining concessions and and forestry concessions uh, with a vengeance. And so today, 30% or approximately of the entire Honduran country is under some sort of concession, something like 30%. Mm. Well, what this does, of course, is extractive industries like mining, especially, are very uh, damaging to the environment uh, and also very destructive of water sources and the earth. And so in these small communities, companies come in, mining companies from the U.S., from Canada, especially Canadians are the biggest miners in Honduras, uh, Chinese companies and others. And they mine things like gold, silver, iron ore, and timony, which we use for our cell phones. But all of this mining uses up huge amounts of water, destroys the water table, uh, and and pollutes the land. 
so much so that um, pollution itself forces some of these rural communities to give up farming and to move into the city. Uh, or in many cases, we have the ongoing conflict over land where large landowners or corporations, with the help of the government and the military, forcibly remove people from the land in order to take them all, take over their land for mining and for activities, do electric projects. And what that does, of course, is it moves people away from being self-reliant farmers and communities and puts them into the job market in big cities where there really aren't enough jobs. And that brings about, you know, a generation of children that grow up in poverty. Uh, And when you have great poverty, you are much more susceptible to things like gang violence and a lot of other things. So that's really kind of why I say that the um, the uh, extractive development policy that was started in the 90s is now, we're now reaping the fruits of that in a country where a whole generation of young people have grown up in poverty, great poverty, mm. and, um, you know, and, and, and very vulnerable to gang violence and drug violence. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, begins to make people flee. The poverty rate in Honduras at the moment is prob- is right around 70% oh according to international wow. sources. And they say about 45% of that is what they call extreme poverty. Oh my. Um, that is by far the, some of the highest rates, in certainly in the Western Hemisphere. Honduras is now the poorest or second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And I've heard it said that uh, people leave home when their home becomes uh, the jaws of the tiger. And it sounds like that, in fact, is happening there. And as Bob Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. So what a surprise. You know, a lot of people are are coming here. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are uh, on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're, we're speaking about uh, 10 years after the coup in Honduras, with the coup of 2009. Here we are 10 years later. I, I just... Why would the U.S. do that? Is it just strict, you know, like feudalism, like we own that land, we can do what we want? You don't have any rights, the people of Honduras. It's just going to benefit the uh, feudal landlords, basically. It sounds like a, a very old picture. I, I just, how can it be justified? Yeah, it's an old picture. I mean, because, you know, the Spaniards did, oh, right. did mining, too, and they used the native people as basically slaves to do the mining and all that in the Western Hemisphere. But this is a different, I mean, here we have a country, Honduras, which if any of you are old enough as I am to remember the 1980s, and I was in Central America in Honduras and Nicaragua in the 1980s, and you remember that uh, through all of that turmoil that was going on there with the Contra War and everything else, that there were thousands of uh, refugees at the time. But um, this is a whole new thing, because now we have a situation where you know, this whole generation has grown up, um, and uh, there are a number of reasons for the, by the way, why there are gangs and, and drug trafficking in Honduras, and that has a lot to do with the U.S. policies as well. Um, not that it's entirely the U.S. fault there, but a large part of it is, is responsible for what we did in the 1980s when we were paying, we were doing drugs, um, arms for drugs or drugs for arms. Ah, yes. Oh, the good old days. In Central America. <laughs> If any of you remember the expose that I think it was the Mercury or the um, San Jose Mercury newspaper did 
and the um, there was a movie that came out a few years ago about this. Um, so that was that arms for drugs, drugs for arms sales. <laughs> Moved the drugs into the United States. The drugs came from Central America from uh, drug dealers. And what we did is promote the whole drugs and arms sale um, phenomenon in Latin America and especially in Honduras. And we still have the legacy of that today in countries like Honduras. In addition to the move of the drug cartels coming in from Mexico and up from Colombia into Central America. Um, and so Honduras today has, you know, uh, the U.S., the United States has interests in Honduras that go back to the 1980s at least, well, back to the time of the of the great banana plantations. You know, Honduras is oh, one of right. those countries that was controlled by the banana companies in the early 1900s. And so banana we, Republic. the United States basically ran the country, uh, really did, I mean... <laughs> Um, and then in the 1980s, we uh, put in our military. Honduras was often called uh, USS Honduras because it was the flagship of our, the, the launching pad for all of the U.S. military oh, right. and, uh, and other um, intelligence operations throughout Central America at that time. I had forgotten and that. It has remained that way ever since. Well, you you write that uh, the, the the government of Juan Orlando Hernandez quote managed to push through a series of laws that established a framework for concentrating power increasingly in the hands of the presidency and the ruling party. Among these were the anti-terrorism financing law of 2010. Now, what is that, and what kind of powers does it give the rulers over any signs of? democracy and people actually using their uh, their freedoms. That law was um, pushed through the Congress. The Congress is controlled by, by the National Party, the Hernandez Party, and, um, and they pushed that through Congress. And that law allows the, um, the Congress to, um, to confiscate the funds, basically to expound, con- up, impound, confiscate the funds of organizations that they think are maybe terrorist organizations. Here's a country where, for years, the um, you know, when peasants occupy land, try to take a piece of land and, become, and, and farm on it, that's often called terrorism. The definition of terrorism in Honduras is quite flexible. <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, this law allows the uh, government and the National uh, Council to decide exactly what is a terrorist organization and what isn't. And, of course, any organization that opposes the government can be considered a terrorist organization by that definition. So that law allows a very much, you know, allows a lot of leeway on that. No, and my goodness. And it allows the government to expound the funds and resources of any organization that does that, that they think is, in, is uh, contrary to their interests. And freedom of the press is under attack everywhere, including here in the United States. You mentioned a new law set to take effect in November 2019. How might news media be affected by this new law? That's the um, the new penal code, the revision of the Honduran penal code, which was opposed vigorously by all the opposition parties in the Congress, but the Honduran Congress, but was pushed through, you know, by the majority, and because they now have clients. The Supreme Court basically is under the president and is in the pocket of the 
of the president and the Congress, so the Supreme Court says nothing. Um, and that law is the, the revision of the uh, penal code uh, will go into effect in November. It isn't there yet, but basically what it does is it weakens the provisions in the existing code that for the sentencing and, and um, of gang members and drug traffickers, criminal offenses, it weakens those and allows uh, smaller sentencing for those kind of crimes and in increases the sentencing for what are called crimes against honor. That includes yeah. basically, and if we don't, I don't think we have that in the U.S. here not yet. yet. At least not yet. Crimes against honor that include uh, forms of public criticism and accusations against powerful individuals and members of the government. So, for example, a few years ago, the bishop, the Catholic bishop of Copan in uh, in Honduras uh, accused the largest landowner of the country at the time, Dotson's died, uh, accused the largest landowner of the country of of um, of killing peasants and you know of a whole series of crimes, which were probably true. At least there was a lot of evidence for that. And the the, the landowner turned around and and uh, sued the bishop for libel. And under this law. This, if that if this law were in effect, that would have put the bishop in jail. Um, mm. Now, news media, of course, this is the whole stock and trade of news media is to ferret out the truth and to ferret out, you know, unpleasant things that unpleasant realities that the public should know about. Yes, um, that's why they're there. And their people, you know, corruption, which is rampant in Honduras. Under this law, it would be very difficult for. Um, for the news media in Honduras to uh, to um, <laughs> to show corruption, I imagine, yeah, corruption and all, you know. Wow. And there are a lot of cases, as you point out, in Honduras. Many news media people, and I know some of them personally, who have been harassed, um, you know, and even jailed. And one of them, a couple of them, have even have been murdered uh, for their attempts to uncover corruption and various things. Wow, you got to keep control over that, I suppose. And a uh, very interesting article that you wrote there. And, and there was the, the term fatherland in there. When, and whenever I hear that term fatherland, I kind of take notice of it. It's got some uh, historical aspects to it. Tell us, please, about a new youth-oriented organization called Guardians of the Fatherland. Tell us about yeah. that. That's in the context of one of the things that the government has done here is um, after they've taken control of, you know, they, a whole series of things, <laughs> um, after some invalid elections that got the president reelected, the current president's been reelected, and that's in violation of the Constitution, which is a one, you know, the one-term election thing in the Constitution, but he's now in his second term in violation of that, and people are up in arms about that. Uh, and controlling both the um, the military and the Supreme Court and the Congress, etc. It's basically that. But now what we see also is that there's been a great increase under this government in the military budget and the secure, what they call the security budget with a significant decrease in the social services budget for health, education, etc. And this is one of the major gripes of uh, many Hondurans, the country is increasingly militarized at the expense of these social services. 
one of the programs that that is an example of the militarization and how far it's gone. Um, two, pro, two actually, the, the military police that the president has formed to be part of his own, basically his own guard. The military police are military that take on the work of the police force, which is again, of course, unconstitutional. Even in our country, we have what is it, the posse comitatus or something, which is. You know, we can't have the military and the police doing the same. You can't have the military doing police work in the country. The military is not for that purpose. But in Honduras, that's exactly what they're doing. Wow. Um, the other example here that you mentioned, you referenced, is Guardians of the Fatherland. Yes. That's my translation of the Spanish, which is Guardianes de la Patria. Patria is... Fatherland. What I translate as fatherland. You know. Yeah. Um Military personnel are giving instructions uh, over, you know, on weekends and Saturdays over a period of time to groups of young people, of youth, in things like um, patriotism, mm-hmm. uh, uh, discipline, et cetera, et cetera. And these are things which, to my mind, at least are the proper function of the family, the school, <laughs> the church, you know. Well, it does. It does kind of remind me of a certain precedent uh, in uh, Germany in the 1930s when they yeah, did that to young yeah. kids, the fatherland. Yeah, well, you know, there are similarities to all dictatorships. <laughs> and what, by the way, this is not my term. Dictatorship is what many Hungarians are calling the current situation. I'm sure. Um, and and so, I just wanted to ask about health care. How has health care been affected? Well, a big part of this, you know, militarization is, of course, taking for two things here. The militarization is, you know, taking money away from the social services budget, which includes health care and education, et cetera. Um, and then also health care is affected because of a great deal. There's been a things like this, a huge scandal, corruption scandal, which occurred a few years ago, I think 2015, 2016, uh, in which the... Um, Social Services budget, the budget that funds the public health system in Honduras, discovered that um, it was discovered by a very courageous, um, courageous uh, journalist that that budget had been um, siphoned off uh, little by little to the tune of about three hundred million dollars, almost three hundred million U.S. dollars um, that had been taken out of the health budget, the public health budget. That means that now we have a health system in Honduras that is pretty much dysfunctional, um, and public people who poor people who depend on public health, you know, clinics, etc., who can't afford private private health care, these folks have been greatly disadvantaged, and it looks like, uh, according to to some many people, a lot of people have died as a result of the inability to obtain, you know, public health care. As a result of this, of this corruption scandal, that has siphoned off that money from the healthcare budget. What they're trying to do in Honduras is privatize all healthcare, and this has been, been one of the uh-huh. objectives of this whole policy. Um, privatize everything. That, of course, like. yeah, that would just make things worse for a lot of, especially the poor. So why wouldn't they leave and come to America? These caravans. It's like uh, it's it it started in 2017 and. You know, it's just going on. You mentioned that yeah. that the business community is also not thrilled about the state of the state ten years after the coup. They can often be uh, determinants for yeah. change. 
Well, that's both the both the church, the Catholic Church, has come out in criticism of the government, which is a little unusual. And they, although they've done it before, but the business community is beginning to grumble about the fact that the country is in debt. Uh, the debt is getting worse, and the um, there are a lot of reasons for that, which we probably don't have time to get into now. But this whole model of development is a big part of that. Basically, corruption is not a good way to run a healthy economy. Massive corruption. <laughs> so Seems they, like a general uh, rule. They're beginning to worry about that. Uh, yeah, and so there's a lot of a lot of questions about you know the support that the government will have even among some of these these areas sure. in the future. Um, I, w- I would mention before you know sure. our time is up that. Um, in the U.S. Congress, yes, there's that's... been a lot of questions these days about what's, how our foreign military aid, our foreign security aid, is being used in a country like Honduras. Our foreign military aid goes to the military, the police, and the it's a security aid. It goes mm-hmm. to the police and the military in Honduras, and that is used for supplies, for for logistical stuff, for you know all uh-huh. kinds of material. Um, but of course, the military and the police in Honduras are the, some of the primary sure. arm of the government to repress popular protest. And there's been a lot of human rights violations as a result of that. So in the Congress, we now have a bill, and it is the Berta Cáceres Human uh-huh. Rights in Honduras Act. It's House of Representatives 1945, H.R. 1945. Thank you. Um, Hank Johnson of of Georgia is the principal sponsor, and it's looking for more sponsors. So if you have folks uh-huh. up there in your part of the woods that are interested in this, they might contract your Congress people in the House and tell them to support H.R. 1945. H.R. 1945. Wow, so informative. Thank you so much. If people want to read more of your stuff and you know follow your uh, your writings, any suggestion on uh, any, something on that great Internet thingy? Well, the article comes out in Counterpunch. It's out there right now. Counterpunch, So um, it's been out since last weekend. And at the end of that article, I have a few suggestions for further reading. Ah. Three or four books, which are, um, and it is a shameless self-promotion. One of them is mine. Well, sure. The others are uh, books that I recommend that are very well-resourced and by good scholars, uh, scholarship that will get you into more detail about this. In Honduras is a good case study of, you know, how things are are run um, in places like Central America and why we have so many immigrants, refugees seeking refuge in the United States. These are folks who, for whatever the dangers are of traveling to the U.S., staying in Honduras from their perspective is far more dangerous. So we have to understand that, that they won't stop coming as long as the situation in Honduras is as bad for them as it is. So. Well, thank you for informing us, James Phillips. You shed a lot of light into this largely unknown area. Thank you so much for being with us, and, and hopefully we can contact our members of Congress to support legislation to uh, the uh, Berta Carceres uh, legislation. Thank you. Thank you. A little Honduran music.